Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that unmasks history, even when it isn't pretty. I'm Gabe Lusier, and today we draw our Halloween week to an especially dark close by looking at the story of a father who poisoned his own son's Halloween candy. It was a case that terrified the nation and forever tainted an otherwise harmless holiday. As you've probably gathered, today's episode covers a very disturbing subject. It includes descriptions of violence involving children, and it may be too upsetting for some listeners. If that sounds like you, or if you'd just prefer to hear something a little less scary, check out our Halloween-themed episodes from last year. Otherwise, I'll see you back here tomorrow for a much lighter episode. The day was October 31st, 1974. Ronald Clark O'Brien gave cyanide disguised as candy to five unsuspecting trick-or-treaters, including his own children. The weaponized sweets were part of a monstrous scheme to collect the life insurance policies he had recently taken out on his young son and daughter. Tragically, O'Brien succeeded in killing his eight-year-old son, Timothy, but police were able to reach the other four children before they could ingest the poison. When O'Brien's heinous crime was exposed, it lent credence to the already circulating stories of tainted Halloween candy. 
transforming what had been mere urban legend into cold hard fact. From that day forward, O'Brien became known both as the Candyman and as the man who killed Halloween. 30-year-old Ronald Clark O'Brien lived with his wife, Danine, and their two children, Timothy and Elizabeth, in Deer Park, Texas, a working-class suburb of Houston. O'Brien worked as an optician for Texas State Optical, making corrective lenses for vision problems. In the eyes of his small community, he was an upstanding citizen. He served as a deacon at his local Baptist church, where he also sang in the choir, and his pastor once described him as, quote, a good Christian man, and an above-average father. But O'Brien's squeaky-clean image belied his own inner darkness. It would later come to light that he had been fired from 21 different jobs over a 10-year period, sometimes for negligence, sometimes for his fiery temper, and sometimes for fraud. By the fall of 1974, he was also struggling with severe financial problems due to his own reckless spending habits. He was roughly $100,000 in debt, having defaulted on several bank loans. His family home was under foreclosure, and his car was about to be repossessed. It was in this precarious situation that O'Brien hatched one of the most sadistic plans imaginable. He would murder his own children and collect enough life insurance payouts to settle his debts and live comfortably from then on and he decided that Halloween night would be the ideal time to put his plan into action. Like most American parents, O'Brien was aware of the urban legends about strangers distributing Halloween candy laced with drugs or stuffed with pins or razor blades. He hoped that by playing into that widespread fear, he could deflect suspicion away from himself, a loving father, and onto some anonymous boogeyman. The O'Briens began their Halloween evening by having dinner at the home of their friends, Jim Bates, his wife, and their two children. After the meal, the two dads left the Bates house in Pasadena, Texas, to go trick-or-treating with three of the children, Bates' son and O'Brien's son and daughter. Eventually, the group came to a darkened house along the route. The kids rang the doorbell just in case, but when nobody answered, they moved on to the next one. O'Brien, however, lagged behind the group, and when he came running back up a few minutes later, he was waving five giant pixie sticks, the ones that come in two-foot-long plastic straws. He told the kids that not only had someone been home at the dark house after all, they were giving out the good, expensive candy. It was their lucky day, he said. No one questioned O'Brien's story about where the candy had come from, but the truth was that he had been carrying the straws with him all evening. He had kept them hidden up the sleeve of his raincoat until he could find the right opening. He passed one of the pixie sticks to each of the three children on the walk, and Jim Bates took another to give to his five-year-old daughter, who had stayed behind at home. O'Brien gave the final straw to another trick-or-treater they encountered on their route, a ten-year-old boy that he recognized from church. When they got home later that evening, O'Brien told his kids they could each have one piece of candy before bed. His daughter, Elizabeth, said she was too tired and wanted to save all her candy for tomorrow, but Timothy jumped at the chance. His first choice was a lollipop, but his dad suggested he have the pixie stick instead. After all, he reasoned, it was much bigger than a lollipop. Timothy took the bait. He put the straw to his lips and tipped it back to swallow what he believed was flavored sugar. 
But after the first taste, the boy knew something was wrong. He said it didn't taste sweet at all. In fact, it was bitter. His father said not to worry, though, and gave him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash it down. Timothy finished the rest of the straw, and less than an hour later, he was dead. When the boy's body was taken to the morgue that night, the medical examiner noted the smell of almonds coming from his mouth. That's often an indicator of cyanide poisoning, and an autopsy later confirmed that suspicion. Timothy had consumed enough potassium cyanide to kill two or three grown men. Back at the O'Brien house, police found evidence of tampering, both on Timothy's empty pixie stick and on the one his sister hadn't opened. The killer had unfastened the straws, replaced most of the candy with cyanide, and then stapled them shut. The police spent the rest of that Halloween night rounding up the other three poisoned sticks. They arrived at the Bates house at 11pm, and thankfully the children's mother hadn't let either of them eat any candy that night. It took a few hours to track down the last child to receive a pixie stick, the trick-or-treater from church, but police finally found him at 2am. His mother also saved his life by not allowing him to eat any candy that night. It was a close call, though. The boy was actually found asleep in bed with a poisoned pixie stick beside him. He had attempted to eat it in secret, but tired himself out trying to undo the staple and eventually fell asleep before getting it open. Once the rest of the candy tubes were recovered, police turned their attention to O'Brien. His story about where he had gotten the deadly treats was awfully suspicious. At first, he claimed to not remember which house had given them out. Then he identified the dark house on their route, but said he couldn't describe the suspect because all he had seen was a hairy arm thrusting the straws through the doorway. The man who lived at that house turned out to be an air traffic controller who was working a shift on Halloween night. He had about 200 witnesses to confirm his alibi, including his wife and daughter, who had stayed home to distribute candy, before they ran out and turned off the light. This revelation led the police straight back to O'Brien, it turned out he had contacted several chemical companies about where to buy cyanide, and had even jokingly asked how much it would take to kill someone. Next, the police turned their attention to O'Brien's many financial woes. They learned he had just taken out $60,000 life insurance policies on his children at the start of October. When detectives searched his house in early November, they found a paper with all of his debts listed out in writing, how much he owed on the house, the car, and so on. When the figures were added up, they totaled the exact amount O'Brien stood to collect from insurance. A few days later, he was arrested and charged with Timothy's murder. O'Brien's wife, Daneen, insisted she was completely unaware of what her husband had done, and later testified against him at trial. O'Brien maintained his innocence as well, but the Harris County jury wasn't having it. They found him guilty after just 46 minutes of deliberation and determined his sentence, the death penalty, in just over an hour. O'Brien appealed, many times, and the case dragged on for nearly ten years. Eventually, though, on March 31, 1984, Ronald Clark O'Brien was executed by lethal injection. Before the sentence was carried out, he enjoyed an untainted last meal of french fries, peas, and a Boston cream pie. For him, the poison came later and it provided a far more peaceful death than the one he gave his son. But since it's Halloween, and since O'Brien was a monster, 
Let's treat ourselves to the assumption that he at least heard the demonstrators who had gathered outside the prison. Because there were hundreds out there. Many were parents. Some were dressed in masks and costumes. And as the Candyman's sentence was carried out, they all cheered him on his way, yelling, what else? Trick or treat. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully, you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about the story of today's show by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I hope your Halloween is a happy and safe one. Statistically speaking, it probably will be. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.